It's a rip roaring adventure. There is uh, some some incredible uh, battle scenes. Um, there's some incredibly tense, fraught moments. That's right, Ryan Van Lone. Just a little sneak peek for what's ahead in season three of You May Contribute a Verse. I'm Josh Munkin, children's lit author, father, science communicator, podcaster, and host of You May Contribute a Verse, the set of conversations with creators I value. Today's conversation launches year three of this podcast project, revisiting time spent last September with Ryan Van Lone, author of the Fall of the Gods series, including The Sin in the Steel, published in July 2020, and The Justice in Revenge, published in July of this year. So happy to have had the chance to speak with Ryan again. If you haven't yet listened to the conversation we had last year, do so now and get to know his earnest goodwill, his fandom, his discipline, and his immense drive. If you have listened, or if you just want to keep chugging along, as is your right, don't touch a thing. We're nine months more into Ryan's journey as a published fantasy author, with The Sin and the Steel coming out in paperback this summer, The Justice and Revenge releasing in hardcover in July, and the third in his trilogy now in the editing process. We will name that third book, but you have to make it to the end of the conversation for that unveiling, or read Ryan's newsletter either way. Uh, Ryan and I cover a lot of ground again, discussing contracts, critique groups, complications, characters, and changes across the board. What happens when you begin to get the thing you seek? As it turns out, Ryan's watching that play out along with his scrappy protagonists, Buck and Eld, though they're having super different experiences with that achievement. Without any further ado, here's Ryan Van Loan's verse. Like everything in 2020 and 2021, uh, everything is on borrowed time or stolen time sometimes. So I'm over at my mom's house at the moment with, uh, with my laptop set up on a longer burger basket and, uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, my microphone on top of a suitcase that I used to take toys in, uh, to my own grandma's house when I was a kid. So that's, that's really, uh, that is indicative of how stuff gets done in the Munkin household. I'm curious how stuff gets done with you guys. Yeah. Uh, you know, as stable as it can be, um, it was more stable pre pandemic, uh, more regimented. Um, but we've settled into a routine. It's been interesting to find that rhythm, uh, because I was, I think for so many years before the pandemic, I just very regimented. Um, you know, I had my commute down, I had my workout time down, I had my work hours and then I was home and, and it was just all very different. So I think like everyone, you know, the past year has been kind of rediscovering what normal can look like. But, uh, you know, I think I, I think we settled in. Good. I, I went back as I'm sure, or I imagine you might've done and listened to our conversation from last year. Another time in prep for this conversation, and um, the note that we ended on was butt in chair and hand hands on keyboard. And I keep saying to myself, but, butt on keyboard and hands in chair, which is more like my writing process. But like in the sense of of especially pandemic planning or pandemic execution of hobbies for me, it's it's all on borrowed and stolen time. I'm I'm curious what. I'm curious what has changed about your writing patterns and if you can characterize how you sit down and be regimented about writing. What is what, what is the process by which you sit down and, and plan out your work? Yeah, no, that's a great question. 
So that's been, I think that was probably the biggest thing when, when thinking about like regimen and, and how you, you know, get the work done. That's probably the biggest thing that changed for me in the pandemic because before, um, you know, I don't, I don't have a long commute to work, but it was about 25 minute drive. And so, you know, on the way home, I would be thinking in my mind about, okay, what are the scenes that I'm going to write today? You know, I'm a plotter, so I have an outline. I know what, I know roughly what the scene is, but what's the feeling? What's the character feeling? What are points of focus? And so I'm thinking about all of that. I get home, you know, take care of my dogs. Uh, it's still kind of just percolating in the background, maybe go for a walk. And then I get back and I sit down and I start writing. And so I'm already, you know, pages in, in my mind. So it's a lot easier to write from that than it is from like just a cold start of, I just sat down on my keyboard and now what, um, you know, I don't have that commute anymore. And my job is in healthcare. Uh, I'm not a clinician, but I, I, it's in healthcare. And so the hours have been just um, off the charts for the last year. Uh, and then also we went to fully remote and the, the whole system did and they weren't prepared for it. So no boundaries, people not understanding like, you know, that you actually need to go to the bathroom between Zoom meetings and stuff like that. And so it took me a while to figure it out, but I didn't have a ton of time because I was writing book three last summer. So I wrote book three. I started in June and I finished in August and it was, I think, 143,000 words. Um, and so, you know, I kind of tried to find, I tried to create my own commute time, basically. is the only answer I have. I would go for a walk after work. I would um, read a couple pages out of a book and then like you know, just walk around, do some, do some, uh, cleaning around the house for a couple of minutes. Cause I hate cleaning, but just for a few minutes to try to give me that kind of buffer between the day job and I'm transitioning over to writing. Uh, but it was hard. I mean, I was writing later than I normally do. I was getting up, uh, towards the end there to make sure that I met my goal. You know, I, I normally get up early and work out, but I was getting up, you know, an hour earlier than that. So I was getting up like three in the morning, three thirty in the morning, to, uh, to just get up and try to write, you know, a thousand words before I would jump into the day. And then I'd come back at the end of the day and try to write another 2000. Um, so that's how I did it. It's not, I don't think that's long-term what I was doing there for that book. I don't think that's long-term sustainable for me because I don't operate great on less than seven hours of sleep. Um, but if you're looking to put out a book, I mean, and you're not provided, it doesn't take you six months or a year to write one book, I would say, you know, that's the sort of thing that you just got to think about where, how can you get yourself into the mental space before you sit down at the keyboard so that you're already kind of writing in your mind? And then how can you find, like you said, kind of steal those kind of creative moments away where you can live on that borrowed time. And so that's what I did this summer when I finished that third book. And that's what I've been doing to a degree now that I've, I've kind of two books on the burner right now that I'm, I'm oscillating back and forth on. Yeah, I'm sure you didn't waste any time. Uh, after finishing book three to get onto the next idea, which I'm sure was was percolating or, or on the back burner for quite a while. Well, I well I want to be careful because I don't want to make this seem like oh you know this is the way the way of things. There definitely actually there was about there's probably a good month and a half period there uh, where I had this um, you know this kind of malaise, uh, and I think every writer has that when they finish a book. But this was I finished the series, and I've never finished a series before. And I wasn't ready to let the characters go. And so it was weird. Um, I mean, I guess it's the power of the written word and I'm a writer, so I should believe in that. But it just caught me off guard. I wasn't prepared. So 
we uh in October we went to um we rented a beach house because we were working from home so we were able to rent a beach house for like a week uh and like quarantined away from everyone uh with the dogs and um you know I think the sin and the steel is is all about you know pirates in the ocean and uh, the other books as well, to a degree, have water in play. So I think just being able to go for those walks was along the beach kind of helped recenter my mind. And then I got back into it. But yeah, I mean, I had ideas. I had fully intended that I'm just going to jump right into this and go. And, uh, you know, my brain had other ideas. So I had to sit with it for a little bit. Like a, well, you need like a, a rebound novel that you can write. Yeah. <laughs> it's just get it out. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I have to say uh, to just just based on the the rigor the the organized organized button share hands on keyboards rigor with which you approach your work and just the the tone of our last conversation i have to cop to the fact that you know you that conversation i think was on the cusp of what started me writing actively for myself again and so you know i have a lot of appreciation for that that conversation in, in terms of being a kick in the pants to start stealing those moments for myself. No, that's awesome. No, that's, that's flattering. I'm glad that it's, that it's helped. I mean, you know, your type of podcast is what I used to listen to all the time. I still do, but what I used to listen to all the time before I had an agent, when I was just writing, you know, in my room in the dark, basically like wondering if it was ever going to lead to something. So it's really cool uh, to hear that and hopefully other people too, like, that are listening, you know, are able to, to find, you know, something in that. And it's definitely not one size fits all. I get what you mean about picture, picture books and the quick turnaround and stuff like that. Um, I know some people that just write on the weekends. I can't do that. I have to write all the time or I lose it. But um, I know people that do that. There's definitely different ways, but yeah, whatever provides that impetus, that's cool. Yeah. And whatever unlocks the sort of um, to drive to get the words on the page. For me, I was having an exchange with a couple of other writers the other day on the fact that it's more like a pressure cooker. Um, you, mm-hmm. you said you kind of get centered in your process. And, and for me, and I came to learn, thankfully, for some others, it's more like you just wait until the, the words build up in your head uh, and, and, mm-hmm. and they all kind of tend to flow out, which is a it can be an uncomfortable way to write, but uh, is its own sort of productivity and I think one of the notes that we hit on when we talked last is this this notion of finding out who you are as a writer and finding out what works best for you and um, yeah. and and not holding yourself to any sort of template for how you have to produce is important and doing things at the right time. Um, and so, you know, I'm, I keep comparing and contrasting with that sort of like, I'm going to percolate, I'm going to put some intentionality behind it and then actually put my butt down in a chair and get some writing done tonight and every night and hold myself to, you know, a thousand in the morning, 2000 at night. Yeah. yeah. I'm curious what your experience has been in the lead up to, to your relationship with Dong Wan and getting a publishing deal, what your relationship has been and now with Chrissy partners and with others with whom you share your work and alpha read and, and comparing contrast notes. Yeah. Great question. I mean, so before, before I got published, I was part of a writing group. Um, I'm still a part of it, but I'm, I'm more of a passive member at this point. It's part of a writing group that came out of uh, one of the writing excuses uh, retreats that, that Brandon Sanderson and Mary Robinette Kowal, Dan Wells, uh, Howard Taylor all put on. Um, and so that was, that was a good group. Um, you know, it wasn't, 
it was difficult. It's difficult when you're workshopping, I think with, you know, five, six or more people to, to get through an entire novel in, in any decent length of time. So I got maybe a third of the way through that novel, I think of the one that was published with that group. Um, and then along the way, I've always had, you know, I've had two or three friends or, uh, you know, writers that I've met, um, that have been, you know, kind of beta readers for me to kind of go through and read those. And so, you know, with the, with the writing group, it was more because I think, you know, you focus on a chapter at a time. So the, the, the feedback is rarely about the story as a whole. And it's really about like the, the syntax of a scene or, you know, what you're putting in on the page in that particular area, you know, is the sentence awkward, um, that sort of a thing. And so I think that helped a lot actually with tightening up the way I write beginnings and, and things like that. Um, I think the beta readers were, were better at providing kind of that overall structural, like it does this make sense? It was it boring here. Like, you know, I didn't really know what this was, or I didn't understand this, this plot point that, that seemed to be important, that sort of thing. But really what has been helpful has been, you know, getting um, professional level feedback. So, uh, you know, Don Juan, some of the authors that are, are reading my stuff that are either published or like should be published, but, you know, haven't had the time to, to really get out there and do it. Um, very, very helpful. Uh, Don Juan was, you know, kind of an, uh, a big editor uh, in their own right, um, you know, acquired uh, the Expand series before they left uh, Orbit. Um, Sean and McGuire as Mira Grant and a bunch of others. So, so, you know, Don Juan's feedback is always great. And then getting, you know, a professional editor with uh, Melissa Singer is, has been, has been wonderful as well. Um, it's actually helped, you know, I thought I had a really solid process. I'd written seven books when this one got picked up. I've written 12 now. Um, and I, I thought my process was in and I knew who I was, but I actually discovered that, you know, I'm actually a bit of an underwriter. That's why editing, I think, has always been so painful to me is trying to cut stuff when like actually I need to be adding. And so, you know, I've actually seen that over the course of the three books, the feedback I'm getting from those folks has been less and less around that because I've started to like look for that. Okay. Am I really explaining this or am I leaving too much in my head and not enough on the page? That sort of a thing. I know so, I need to give more. I mean, it's definitely all played a role, but yeah, yeah, it's been interesting. That's, that is interesting. Um, I mean, is there, is there room for continued value in critique partners? Do you work within like the professional machine after a certain point? Um, I think there is, if they can get the, if you can figure out a way to get the feedback in quickly enough, like Brandon Sanderson still has a critique group. So, I mean, uh, who am I to say that there's no value in that? I think there is. I had to step back from my writing group because, um, you know, I just didn't have the time to read their stuff and provide critiques and get critiques back. So, you know, I think the optimal solution that I don't have today, but in my, you know, dream of dreams would be uh, you have a couple of, of either really talented readers or writers that are, you know, fans also and just waiting to read those books and they can turn them around quickly and give you feedback that you can count on. Otherwise, you know, I think the professional apparatus is, is definitely useful and helpful. Um, I do have like I do have a couple of beta readers still that I think are really helpful for me, and I, I you know I love to bounce stuff off of them before I put it out there. Uh, but but it is difficult, you know. Once you start to get into that publication schedule, you don't really have time. If somebody says, "Oh, well, I can get to it next month," it's like, "Well, that's too late." Like I needed it, you know, next week, right? I can't use it. My editor's gonna so be done it, with it next month, right? 
Exactly. Exactly. It's like, well, I'm going to be on to the next thing by that point. So yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes. Yeah. We talked uh, process and we should probably talk about the actual book that we're, <laughs> that we're talking about. <laughs> and I guess it's, it's two things here because one, you, you dropped just yesterday, which is not yesterday by podcast publication time, but you dropped yesterday the fact that you, you now have paperback, paperback books in hands, mm -hmm. I guess around a month before the hardback of the Justice and Revenge drops. Did you, has that all been scheduled out beforehand? In in relation to the, the the pattern or the deadlines for writing the trilogy, do you know beforehand mm -hmm. when your paperback is going to come out? And are you able, or is Tor able to time it so that the paperback comes out just before the hardback of Justice? I imagine the answer is yes, because all that stuff's coordinated. Yeah, well, <laughs> so when you sign the contract, the dates aren't necessarily hard hardwired in there. Like the first delivery date is, um, and the rest of the delivery dates on mine were in there, but the, the publication dates weren't. Uh, I think originally we were looking like May of last year, and then way, way before that, it got pushed to June and then eventually it turned into July. And I think by the time it officially showed up anywhere, it was already July, but yeah, no tour plans it out that basically 11 months after your hardcover came out, the paperbacks coming out just, you know, basically uh, on the heels of when that, when your next book is going to hit hardcover on, on shelves for the first time. So that's all planned. What, what do you think that's going to unlock for you and for sales and things? I mean, do you, do you expect to see a bump with that and with the release in justice? Um, well, that's one of the things that, I mean, I, to be honest, I have no idea. Um, <laughs> so you know, tour hopefully has an idea cause they're the experts right. in, in publishing. And so they have a, a strategy and presumably that's based upon years of evidence. And so, yes, but, uh, that's one of the things I learned in the last year. The, the thing that I think has surprised me the most about being an officially published author where my books out there, people can actually buy it and read it is how little control I have over people buying and reading my book. Um, and by little, I mean none, uh, like, like none. I have a thousand followers on Twitter. Um, I have a few hundred newsletter followers. I can blast that out to the sky, but I know that, you know, my, my, my tweets only get like 500 hits, not a thousand. My, my newsletter gets read by like 60, 70% of people, which is actually a good percentage, but still low. And outside of that, I have zero control over anyone else walking into a bookstore if they've heard of me or not. So that's really all on the publisher. Um, and it's also on luck too, right? Like um, it's on, you know, somebody famous happens to see the book or somebody happens to read it who works at NPR and they put you on like the national scene instead of like your local regional scene and all those sorts of things are luck. But um you can't get lucky if, if you're not making ripples and the ripples an author can make are, are tiny. Well, and that, I guess that's a question, uh, you know, my day, day job, you, you outed yourself as working in healthcare. I work in communications and marketing. And I, first of all, as someone who's been in charge of a newsletter before a 60 to 70% open rate or read rate for a newsletter is fantastic. It's a, it's, it's like chart, <laughs> chart blowing. So, um, if you need a new career, go into <laughs> marketing and content <laughs> development, but, um, uh, and now I've distracted myself with newsletter discussion. <laughs> so when you, when you think about the outreach that you do, some like scheduled appearances and readings and signings and virtual cons and stuff like that, is that, are those ripples 
are those ways to reach back out to the community or are those um, intentional ways to sort of introduce your book to new readers or some combination of both, both of those aspects, I suppose. Yeah, it's both. I mean, it is ripples. It's getting your name out there because I, I mean, I think there's that, that marketing quote about like, you have to see something like five times or seven times before you're going to consider purchasing it. And so anytime you can get out there, that's potentially one of those times. Um, but those, those areas like conventions, readings, um, signings at bookstores, that's really for the hardcore audience, right? That's for the people that are probably plugged into the genre community that are part of that discourse that you see online. Like they're the ones that are going to Worldcon and voting on the Hugo. Um, they're the ones that they're not going to make you a bestseller, but they're the ones that are going to tell all their friends who aren't plugged into the community, but love to read those types of books and, you know, read a couple a year or maybe even one a month, but just don't know about this other part of it. They're the ones that are going to get those folks to, to start reading them. So, yeah. So, I mean, that's what I can do. I enjoy it. I mean, I've enjoyed going to cons for a while, so I like to be able to participate in that. That's cool. Um, I've been to local bookstores when authors would come through and attended readings and I always enjoyed that. So, you know, if, if it wasn't fun, I probably wouldn't do it because I don't know that I'm necessarily making a huge splash with any of that stuff. Um, barring like if you get on like a San Diego Comic-Con panel like that, that might be pretty meaningful. But even that we're talking about, you know, a few thousand uh, people, maybe um, that's still nothing like, you know, that's not going to get you on any list. Yeah. So. yeah. What feels big as someone who is going in front of that many people is still in marketing and sales terms. You know, you, you get a, a small fraction of that that turns into sales and that's still, totally. you know, uh, pretty small. So you do what you can, I guess. We're talking, yeah. yeah, we're talking, I mean, book, book marketing and book sales. And I'm curious about all that stuff, but we should, <laughs> I guess, introduce the justice in revenge as well. So I'm, Let's do the let's do the book pitch for your sequel. Um, now that you you wrote the Sin and the Steel, have that out into the world. I know that before Sin and the Steel was out in in the world, you at least had a draft of uh, of Justice and Revenge done and in the mm -hmm. pipe and in the editing. So um, introduce us to where we are with Buck and Eld after Sin and the Steel. Sure, sure. So. Uh, the Justice and Revenge picks up kind of where we left off. It's the dynamic duo dealing with uh, the fallout from the events at the end of The Sin and the Steel. This one is set against the backdrop of Cervenza. It's an island gearwork city. There's a bunch of amazing set pieces there. So there's boardroom intrigue, there's masquerade balls, gondola chases, street gangs, shape-shifting mages. Um, but really it's also the turn from Buckeneld from, you know, dealing with pirates and, and, uh, and, um, you know, sale and things like that to politics and mystery. And um, the, the fun one with this is there, uh, you know, they, they start to realize there's an evil mastermind who might be the only one who can rival Buck's genius. And uh, that turns out to be the deadliest mystery of their career. And so that's that's where the justice picks up and uh, starts to carry us through. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, act two of the three acts, if we're thinking about it from a, a trilogy and a, a three act structure perspective. I know we talked last time about things changing during the editorial process. Um, how did you always have it in the plan that Cervenza would be the setting for book two? They would essentially come back home 
and experience the sort of ramifications of their abroad adventures. Yeah, yeah. So not to spoil book one too much, but book one kind of sets up, you know, the characters introduces us to the world. There's it's a fun adventure fantasy, but lurking in the background is this theme of Buck wants to upend her corrupt society and that society is being propped up by the the gods. And so to to do that, she really needs to take on the gods. So book one is how does she get leverage to do that? Book two is now she has the leverage, but can she actually do what she set out to do? And so that I knew that was going to bring us back into kind of the halls of power. And I really wanted to show that because the reader needs to understand, like, what is this corrupt society? What does that look like? Um, and so, you know, Cervenza is a fun place to be, but it's a pretty harsh reality too. It's, it's very segmented. If you're in, if you're rich and noble, then like you're living in like the gilded quarto and like, you know, you know, smelling the perfume, perfume of the flowers as you go to masquerade balls. Whereas if you're in the tip, um, you know, all the sewage is running down there. You've got child labor, you've got, you know, privation and starvation and, and people just trying to eke out a, a meek existence. And that's the world that Buck knows. So I always knew we were going to come back there. Um, but I also wanted to make sure that, you know, it was a fun journey for the reader. So, you know, carrying through that theme of adventure with heart. And so the heart is all those things I just talked about. The adventure is, you know, the, the city on the water and canals and, and all sorts of cool, fun, fun things there. How much of that got built in the writing? I know you said you're a plotter, but did you have a good idea of what Cervenza was going to be before you set out to write this or even before you set out to write Sin? Yeah, I think I, I knew probably before I wrote Sin um, because I do my world building off of the characters. And I think I talked about that last mm -hmm. time, but I start with characters and, you know, kind of they speak to me, tell me who they are. And that starts to influence how I think about what their world's going to be like. So some of Buck's backstory shows up in The Sin and the Steel, and there's a couple of pretty key flashback scenes. And in order to write those, I had to have a pretty strong sense of what Cervenza looked like, what it felt like. And, uh, and so I had, I had a map of it already. I kind of knew where the quartos were and things like that. Now, some people go super deep with the world building. Um, I love history. And so if you, if I suck myself into that, I could go that far. I try not to get sucked in too much, but I knew I needed to have a pretty strong sense of what this place was because it, it just was so t closely tied with Buck and, and her motivations. Uh, so by the time I got to justice, I, I, the world was much more solidified because I just written one book in this place, but now I'm going to a different, different section that we didn't really get to see in book one. They, they leave almost from the first chapter. And so it was, it was almost like coming back home in a way, but, uh, um, you know, I, I liken it to travel, you know, you leave home one person, you come back a, a slightly different person and, and that's how it felt. Did you have anything that you had prepared that, about Cervenza or about some of the secondary characters or even Buck and Eld themselves that had to change as a result of the plot that you wanted to, the story that you wanted to tell in Justice? Yeah, yeah, I changed. So the world building itself didn't change a whole lot, um, but I did change around some of the power structures and dynamics that I, I originally thought that were going to be there. Um, I knew there was going to be, we were going to get to see the ruling class in the Doja and uh, her constabulary. And I knew we were going to get to see, you know, the behind the scenes in the trading companies. Uh, 
the the level that we would see into the kind of the gangs and those interrelationships and some of the machinations going on that you know all the sort of complex things that we would associate with with a mafia but if you read back in like renaissance italy and stuff like that and florence and you know the condottieri and and the bankers there's really a complex web upholding the society uh that's all all below the surface um and getting i i when I started to explore that surface, I did have to make some changes there, but uh, it was it was kind of a pleasant surprise, really. It was it was deeper than than even I thought it was going to be. And that and that was where I was going to go next. That you've sort of segued into is the fact that it it does seem to be inspired by Renaissance Italy or or Italian history in one form or another. I mean, how deeply did you dive into the way that that works to to sort of model this society after that? Um, to a degree. So I've, I, I mentioned, I like history. So I've, I've read, you know, quite a bit on the Italian Renaissance. Um, I have, you know, I have a couple of boxed away right now, but, uh, I have uh, a couple of books on Venice, um, just to get a sense of what that feels like. Cause I haven't been to Italy. Uh, I'd love to go, but I just haven't been to Italy. Um, so that, that gave me a flavor of things. And then honestly, it definitely has a flavor of the Italian Renaissance, but from a technological perspective, we're a little bit further in the future than they were. And I wanted it to also have more of an open Mediterranean feel. So the rest of the world is probably a little bit more generic Mediterranean, obviously some places that are Caribbean um, influenced. Uh, Cervenza is, is probably the closest to to the Italians. And that gave me a good solid base. And I kind of just ran with it from there. It is your world to create after all, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't have to, it doesn't have to make sense. Um, Honestly, if anything, the last year has shown us is reality often doesn't make sense. So, so yeah, <laughs> it's been less than magical in the last year in a lot of senses. In a in a in in the positive definition of the word magical, I guess. Yes. How uh, some weird technology stuff, and I'm I'm going to try not to get too spoilery. How do you think about the way that magic and technology interact, and some of the restrictions around technology in this world? And again, not to get to, um, they're not, I guess, the, the Venn diagram of magic and technology is not two circles in this world. Yeah. Um, I'm curious how yeah, you, how you conceptualize that. And I think we talked, you know, last time about rules around magic and being too strict with that. But how, how do you conceptualize those overlaps? Because we do get a little bit more technological injustice. You know, I, I think about it, I think about it through a world building lens to some degree in that as we start to see some of the technology, we're also learning more about the gods and their mages and some of their machinations. And hopefully, you know, <clears throat> if you're paying close attention, you can kind of see the lines blurring there a little bit and how they're interrelated. So, so that's one way I think about it. Um, Another is that most of my magic systems are actually science disguised as magic. Um, now it's not science in that, you know, you could go balance some equations and this is actually going to like work out. It's, it's hand wavy science, but there are like technological things that we would recognize as potentially realistic scientific advancements in our modern world, or maybe even in like a Star Trek type world that are, 
are showing up here, but they're showing up here because of, of quote unquote magic. And certainly, you know, there's, there's that old line, I think it's Arthur C. Clarke about, you know, sufficiently, you know, science sufficiently advanced as magic to, to others. It's sort of like that for these people. Um, you know, imagine like a, on the cusp of the industrial revolution type knowledge uh, and, and like, you know, getting a cell phone and some other things like you'll be able to put some of that together, but you won't be able to understand exactly how it works or why it works. And, you know, all the, the um, parts that go into it. And so that's, that's kind of how I'm thinking about it. Um, I think that it's fun to see settings that are magical and fantastical. That's why we read fantasy. So I love putting that sort of stuff in there. Um, I think it sets up some really uh, cool moments of awesome, uh, both in this book and, and in the book to come. Uh, and so that's just another reason to do it. But to the extent that I can have something serving multiple purposes, so in this case, technology kind of feeding back into and supporting the magic system and understanding why the gods have the power they do and things like that, like that to me is is why we why I do it um, and, and how I'm trying to pull it off. I so want to delve into spoiler territory and just ask about detail now that I've read Justice. But this is going to come out afterwards, so we'll hold off until our third conversation. <laughs> there you go. That. Put a pen in it. Yeah, right. we'll come back. Anything? I mean, anything else specific that you want to tease about the way that that justice has come together? Justice is justice is taking that that world and the, the characters that we we kind of came to love in book one and putting them through the ringer in book two. Um, because, you know, I really wanted to explore the theme of power. Uh, you know, that's something that Buck knew she had to get in book one to change the world that, you know, without power, nothing changes because all she sees in her world is might makes right. Um, but then there's that also that that other thought of power corrupts. And I wanted to see, like, what happens when you get what you wanted? Um, you know, I think we've all had that experience before of, you know, what happens, you, you want something desperately, you get it. And sometimes it's not all that it's cracked up to be. And so that's kind of the, one of the themes running through the, the bottom of justice, kind of the, the canal bottom, if you will, of the story. Um, but at the same time, it's just, you know, I always say that she's kind of like Sherlock Holmes meets in, young Indiana Jones, and there's a bunch of adventuring and exploration, but there's also a Moriarty like figure. And so there's a lot of cat and mouse and back and forth. And I think that that's just a fun dynamic for the reader when they're going through the story. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I, I'm reflecting on what you just said, and I'm, I'm trying to think of a, something that disproves this, but it seems like for the characters in Justice and Revenge, anyone who finds themselves with power doesn't necessarily have an easy time of it they struggle to maintain that power. They struggle with the relationships that they form around that power. Um, and it's, it's never easy for them to navigate that. Power doesn't maintain itself, I guess, is a way of thinking at it, thinking about it. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, you know, I think that power is something that everybody wants at some point in their lives. You know, even people that are like, Hey, I'm happy with where I'm at, or, you know, I, I would never, you know, covet what somebody else has at some point from cradle to grave, everyone wants power or is impacted by, you know, an imbalance of power. And so, you know, I, I wanted to show that to be true through the characters. Um, and, you know, I do think like, I, you know, I'm a, I love Captain America. Um, you know, I, I, 
I love Barack Obama. I love these figures that seem to be able to wield power without being corrupted by it. To, um, but at the same time, like I, I kind of doubt that that's true. And I kind of wonder, like, if you put a micro, you know, a magnifying glass up to those to those people. And I know, like, I'm comparing like a, a comic book character with like a real life person. But right. like, I think, like, when you're the president of the United States, like, it's so difficult for the average person, myself to really grasp what that means, the enormity of that every day. Like, you know, uh, the president uh, talks about like every morning he wakes up, the whole paper is his problem. Like every page is something that he has to deal with or is about him. So like just thinking about that, like what does it do to you? How does it change you? How do you fight that? And how do these people that we think are incorruptible, like how did how did that happen? So um the justice in revenge, I think, is is that exploration, and it's that exploration through Buck, who has, you know, the best intentions in the world, but also in book one we saw was pretty much willing to do anything and everything to attain what she needed to do to to get that aim, and you know, I think now now she's starting to get faced with some hard questions, and and this book is trying to figure out what that answer is if there is one. You want to do some fun lightning round Buck and Eld questions? I didn't prepare you with these questions. <laughs> But I, sure. I wanted I want to do some more fun, just thinking outside the box stuff, uh, because I know how long you've lived with these two characters and the rest of the you know, the motley crew in Sin mm-hmm. and Justice and Revenge. Um, so these are going to come out of left field. Um, what is uh, what's Buck's favorite thing to eat for breakfast? Ah. Uh... So I'm not the type of writer that knows what my characters eat and things like that, but food is pretty prevalent in the justice and revenge. Um, she's pretty practical. So, you know, I think she's probably grabbing a scone and uh, a cup of con and going on her way. (laughs) And in fact, I think she probably (laughs) does that in justice and revenge. If I remember correctly, she does. Yeah. That's, that's what I was. Yeah. 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 Spoiler (laughs) alert. Uh, where would Eld go if he could uh, travel anywhere in time? Where would he feel most at home? Hmm. Well, where he would go and where he would feel most at home are probably two different things. I think uh, where he would travel back in time would probably be right before the Sin and the Steel, um, when he and Buck were just solving cases that rich people wanted and there was no larger power play yet you know buck had her eye on the prize of using all those cases to build up you know uh a resume that would get her into the halls of power but i think buck or i mean eld rather is is a bit simpler and uh you know not necessarily looking for the same thing all the time so i think that's where he would go if he would feel most comfortable i think if he could go back in time uh to anywhere i think it would be to um you know his time in the military uh, and probably the moments leading up to, um, you know, to the, to what led to his, uh, his platoon getting wiped out. And I think he would try to fix that because that's, that's, you know, shaped and haunted him ever since. Holy smokes. That's another story right there. <laughs> Time traveling Eld. What would they do mm-hmm. if they were in our world without some of the power? I mean, we've got our own power struggles, obviously, in our real world. But but in a world without magic, without with a lot of more sort of like well-defined technology, would they be as closely tied yeah. together? And what would they do with themselves? Um, I, I think they'd still be closely tied together. I could see I could see Buck not being a private investigator, but being like a cybersecurity hacker, um, and 
and using that for leverage on on different folks. Um, I'd be interested to think to see what she would want to do to right you know the corruptions in our own societies uh, because our world you know is is so much more complex than than a world I'm able to create in a few hundred pages. So I'd be interested to see that. But yeah, I could totally see them having their own cybersecurity company and one of those kind of uh, gray hat ones where. You know, they'll work for the government, but they'll work for, you know, you too, as long as you have the, the right money. Well, what else do you want us to know about Buck and Eldon, Justice and Revenge, before we wrap up for the day? You know, I think I would just say that if, if you were here for The Sin and the Seal, uh, you're in for more of the same. It's a, it's a rip-roaring adventure. There is uh, some, some incredible uh, battle scenes. Um, there's some incredibly tense, fraught moments. Um, Buck's smart mouth gets her into trouble many times more over. So, so all of that. And then I would say, you know, hopefully if, if you enjoyed this in the steel, I'm guessing part of that was, you know, the, the relationship and found family between Buck and Elb. And, uh, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna see that put to the test. So that to me is kind of the hook. If, um, if you've read this in the steel and you liked it, if you, if you haven't read this in the steel yet, um, Adventure Fantasy with Heart, go check it out. It's pirate queens, it's mages, it's cool mysteries and adventures. Um, you know, it's traveling to unknown islands and, and all sorts of cool stuff like that. And it's starting to, to find these two friends as they uh, they begin to take on the world. And I think that's that was a lot of fun too. Yeah. So, and out in paperback soon. That's right. <laughs> yeah, if you haven't read The Sin and the Steel, uh, you will have been directed there by my intro uh, to this episode. <laughs> as well so i hope you i hope anybody that's listening to this uh does check out the sin and the steel so sin and the steel available wherever fine books are sold and ebook and hardcover available in paperback june 29th the justice and revenge will be available in hardcover and ebook on july 13th of 2021 um and the paperback should follow in june of 2022 and the final book uh the memory and the blood uh, will be coming out in July of 2022. Anything to say about that? That's the first time I've heard the title. Yeah. So I've been holding on to that title, but I think it's safe to say now. I kind of, I put it out in one of my newsletters, so I figured I'm just going to start talking about it. And then, you know, my editor can't change it at the last minute. <laughs> Not that I, you would. I can always uh, get a takedown notice from tour, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Let's see. I'm trying to think what I could say about the memory and the blood that uh, that wouldn't spoil anything. One thing I will say is I came up with the plot a long time before recent events in our own world started to happen, because I think that folks are probably going to start wondering about that when they read it. And so I just want to put that out there that that I was there first. Um, and you'll know what that means when you when you see it. Right. Uh you know, I would say just that, you know, I promised you in book one that uh, that Buck wanted a shot at upending her corrupt society. And book three is, you know, book one was her finding the pistol. Book two, two is her loading it. And book three is her firing her shot. So you have to see if it lands or not. All right. Well, it's been a pleasure. And the chance to read both Sin and Justice has been uh, has been really fun for me. Those are rollicking rides that you don't get to experience much uh, in the last year and a half that we've had. Um, so they're a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah. Well, thanks, Josh. I really appreciate it and I appreciate the kind words. Episode 25 of You May Contribute a Verse has come to another epic climax. 
What we've seen from author Ryan Van Loan is just the sequel. Do find a time and a place to enjoy The Sin in the Steel, his debut novel out in paperback next month, whenever you can, and also out next month, The Justice in Revenge uh, in hardback. Find out more about Ryan at ryanvanloan.com or Ryan Van Loan on the socials if you need to see how that's spelled. Look for the metadata in the podcast episode. As for me, You May Contribute Diverse is a homespun production produced, edited, recorded, conceptualized, and marketed by me, Josh Munkin, from the darkness and comfort of my basement. The show got a website. Hit me up at verse.show and find the show and me on Twitter and Facebook as Verse Show. That's V-E-R-S-E-S-H-O-W. The artwork for You May Contribute Diverse is an amazing picture commission for the podcast from a very talented artist, Charlie Munkin, age seven. Love you, Charlie. The show's music is provided graciously by Robbie Zarr via tracks from his album, A Tragic But Happy Horse. Engage with his music and musings at partist.com. That's P-A-R-T-I-S-T.com. If you would be so kind, however you're listening to this, let me know what you think with a comment or a rate. It means a lot. And finally, remember the answer, that you are here, that life exists and identity, that the powerful play goes on, and you may contribute a verse.